0: Good morning, everyone. I'm Frank Fear for Future You and my colleague Ruben Martinez, and we welcome you to what we know will be a very important conversation about a significant issue facing higher education and also society at large. That is the impact of politically motivated philanthropy on higher education and, again, broader society. And we're delighted to have two colleagues who are involved extensively in the fight against that kind of philanthropy. First, we have Isaac Kamola with us, uh, who's written extensively on this subject. Uh, Isaac is an associate professor at Trinity College in Connecticut. And we also are very pleased to welcome back a future U alumnus uh, in the name of Bethany Latik. Bethany is a professor, associate professor, and campus activist at George Mason University in Virginia. Uh, And without further ado, let's get more information about that.
1: Hi, I'm I'm Isaac Kamola. I teach, I'm an associate professor of political science at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. And my research studies the political economy of higher education. Um, And my first book is on the the production, how universities transform to produce knowledge about the world as global. And I have a a forthcoming book called... um, Free Speech and Coke Money, the Manufacturing of College Campus War with Ralph Wilson, um, which I'll talk more about in my presentation.
2: Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for uh, joining with us today. Uh, I'm Bethany Latik. I'm a associate professor at George Mason University, and I teach uh, in a unit called Human Development and Family Science, uh, but I'm also the president of the George Mason University chapter of the American Association of University Professors, and I serve in the faculty senate and i'll focus my comments today on uh, those roles in particular and uh, and our work to organize faculty and fight back against undue donor influence at uh, george mason
0: very good and before we turn to uh, reuben let me also say at the future you website we have uh, several uh, very important documents uh, uh, publications from both isaac and from bethany and we certainly encourage you. Uh, uh, Isaac's book will be coming out in November, uh, Free Speech and Coke Money Manufacturing a Campus Culture War. What's up uh, on the website is his recent Inside Higher Education article, an excellent article, where does the bizarre hysteria about critical race theory come from? Follow the money, just outstanding. And also Beth's uh, very, very good detailed a uh, painful to read article about that's entitled GMU's Donor Problem in the Fight for Transparency uh, that was published in AAUP's academe. Uh, so with that as background, please Ruben.
3: Good morning everyone. I'm Ruben Martinez. I'm professor of sociology at Michigan State University and also the director of the Julian Samora Research Institute. I am pleased to see Beth back again at Future U. I think she gave a presentation here about two years ago, wasn't it Beth, something like that. So thank you for joining us and it's good to uh, meet Isaac uh, for the first time. Uh, Future U really started with a national conference that we held here at Michigan State University back I think in 2015, uh, focused on neoliberalism and public higher education. These conversations uh, all stem from that and what we're talking about is the corporatization uh, of higher education and the kind of influences that have been uh, influ- uh, impacting uh, public higher education. Particularly today, we're going to focus on the influences of donors. We've uh, heard uh, Isaac mention the Koch brothers. We know that Beth has been addressing these kinds of issues over at her university for uh, quite some time. Uh, and we are seeing greater and greater influence as, uh, as time goes by. Uh, The influence has to do not only in reshaping uh, uh, the process for hiring people, the process for establishing units uh, and so forth, but it also has, uh, I think, a great impact on academic freedom uh, and the other side of that, uh, academic repression and so forth. So uh, we're very, very pleased to have Isaac and Beth with us today. These, as uh, Frank has said, are the folks on the front lines and uh, we're looking forward to hearing them. Uh, we also stand for one thing, and that is we want to have the freedom to teach and the freedom to study, both on behalf of faculty, on teachers, behalf of teachers, and also on behalf of students. Students should be free uh, to study the world around them. They are the ones that are going to be living into the future, and they should have the maximum access to knowledge about the world as we go, we look, as we go, go forward. So I'm looking forward to hearing both Isaac and Bethany today.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Ruben. Why don't you introduce our uh, other Zoom Room participants today?
3: So uh, with us is uh, Zach Kaiser, who has also been a presenter uh, at Future U uh, and uh, is a supporter of our initiative. Uh, Jan Beecher has also been with us, I think from the very beginning. Uh, She has uh, some great insight on uh, speaking truth to power or or selling truth to power, uh, (laughs) which is also something that's taking place. Uh, Nathan has been with us as well before. Uh, He has given some excellent presentations on uh, neoliberalism and higher education and looking forward to uh, working with him in the future. Uh, And Louis Dibble, whom I'm not familiar with, but uh, he is with us and uh, perhaps either Frank or you can introduce him.
4: Okay, Uh, I'm Associate Professor of Sociology at IUPUC in Columbus, yeah, Indiana.
0: Very good. And Lou and Terry, uh, Lewis Thibault, Terry. Terry, say a few words about yourself too. Okay,
5: I'm an I'm English professor at the same place as Nathan and Nathan and I and other people meet together occasionally somewhat stimulated by Frank's foregrounding of neoliberalism. In fact, I, about every several days, I see someone slamming neoliberalism and uh, Friedman and Hayek getting uh, poked in the eye and things like that. I never noticed that before I went to one of Frank's presentations. Anyhow.
0: Good. Thank you so much for being here. You know, it's interesting as you bring it up, Terry, I, one of those persons who's maybe one of the few hundred around the country who still reads newspapers every day. (laughs) And, uh, and so I was reading in the Buffalo News the other day and in the lead article on top of the fold, the reporter actually used the term neoliberalism uh, in terms of comparing what was happening in the mayoral race there uh, Mm -hmm. and, and basically classifying the incumbent as a neoliberal uh and was that, that
5: admiring or no uh, putting him down
0: criticizing uh because buffalo is one of the poorest cities in the country highly segregated it's in the top 20 uh and uh, the point with the argument was the mayor is not done enough even though the entire the city is is benefiting significantly by economic development but not african americans and so we used neoliberal in that regard and i'm sure that scrambled a lot of uh A lot of readers to go to their dictionary. What is it? Uh, And when you think about this, and this is introduction to Isaac and his presentation, uh, Reuben, probably five years ago, got me uh, onto a publication I didn't even know existed. Uh, It was a publication written 50 years ago in 1971 by a person by the name of Lewis Powell. I knew him. Uh, At the time, he was not Uh, a member of the Supreme Court of the United States, but he was appointed soon thereafter by President Nixon. And he wrote a 7,000 word missive to the US Chamber of Commerce, and it essentially lays the foundation for uh, for a, a conservative game plan that would be similar to what liberals and progressives were doing in the 1960s with respect to what led to the civil rights legislation and and other things from organizing from the left. And his argument was we need to organize from the right. Uh, And I went back yesterday in preparation for this presentation, this forum and reread what he wrote about higher education. And essentially he said, we cannot have an agenda a political agenda without my word attacking higher education. Uh, And faculty were primarily in his sites and also executives and funding and when I think about um, Isaac's writing, the work that Bethany has written, the work she's doing, and I read that, it is, um, it's stunning. It's chilling because what he proposed back in 1971 has become reality. And the, the drumbeat, the magnitude, however you want to frame it, what metaphor you want to use has just increased. So uh, we appreciate the work that Isaac has done from a research Uh, perspective, particularly in terms of enlightening us, and Beth in terms of the work that she's doing uh, as a campus activist. And with that as background, Isaac, we are very much looking forward to your presentation. I'll turn it over to you.
1: Great. Um, Let's see, share screen, here we go, share, is that showing up? It is. Great. Thanks so much um, to Frank and Ruben and and Bethany and for everybody for being here. It's really great. Um, I could talk about this topic forever, so I'll try to keep it to 15 minutes, but I have a habit of talking fast and talking with great enthusiasm because I think this is an important issue to understand just how deep and profound the right wing and particularly the libertarian right wings, philanthropic um, investments in higher education and the and the deep political strategy. Um, Frank talked about the Powell memo. It, what we're talking about and what we're seeing is the manifestation of the Powell memo on steroids. It's been a 50 <laughs> year stra- strategy. And I think that we oftentimes naively um, don't give it enough credit. So what I wanna do today is um, talk about the structure of right-wing attacks on faculty. And I argue that there's or that there's gonna be a bunch of different types of attacks on faculty, criticisms of faculty over violating free speech or critical race theory. Those are the two cases that I'm gonna look at today and kind of demonstrate that these appear to be organic moral outrage of people expressing on the right that their conservative values are not being represented, that they are under attack by crazy professors social justice warriors, that liberal professors are expressing their bias in the classroom, et cetera, et cetera, or saying outrageous things about race, um, that, that, the, that this is a strategy that works by manufacturing um, um, moral, moral outrage that appears to be organic, right? Uh, I said organized here, but it appears to be organic. But I I wanna demonstrate that this is actually produced within a series of intersecting organizations. And those organizations are incredibly well-funded and designed to appear organic, right? This is part of the strategy of making a bunch of different think tanks and journalistic outlets all, all beating to the same drum, which helps explain why something like critical race theory Um, became this this sensational phenomenon and concern in a very short period of time. So um, um, I I have a book that's coming out that Frank mentioned called Free Speech and Coke Money, Manufacturing a Campus Culture War that I I co-wrote with Ralph Wilson, who is um, one of the foremost uh, investigators and researchers of Coke Money in higher education, um, a founder of the group UnCoke My Campus, and basically, what we demonstrate there um, is just the network degree to which uh, the campus free speech um, um, is or, is organized, and the the, the the so-called crisis over campus free speech is manufactured at a bunch of levels simultaneously. I'll go through that art that argument, but first I I, I want to bring your attention to a talk that Charles Koch gave in 1974. Right. uh, This talk was actually in response to the Powell memo. It was in this talk at the Institute for Humane Studies that he had created and helped to fund, or he helped to fund. Um, um, and, um, and, and, And in this speech, he basically says that Powell is right in that the left has dominated the university and therefore the right wing, and not just the right, but the corporate right, the business right, needs to go on the offense in higher education but he also made the very provocative claim that the Powell memo was actually wrong because Lewis Powell assumed that we lived in a capitalist society. However, we didn't live in a capitalist society because people still paid taxes, supported public education and other kinds of public goods, right? So Koch has a very radical libertarian agenda. In this talk, he talks about it himself as a, ra- a radical. Right. And he basically his goal is to fundamentally transform society to one that um, uh, scholars like Nancy McLean and Theta Scotchpole and others have called property supremacist. Right. That individual property rights determine all aspects of society and that the government is always a threat to that. So in this particular speech in which he was saying that the Powell memo is not even the starting point that we need to establish laissez-faire, ca- ca- completely unregulated capitalism. He also laid out the place in which this struggle should be fought. And he talks about political and lobbying groups. He talks about the media. He talks about the law. But he also said that higher education is a place that you, where you have the greatest multiplier effect. You get your be- your biggest bang for your money, in, um, a, in investing in higher education because it is in higher education and that this was a strategy that was laid out by Richard Fink. Uh, Richard Fink is a Rutgers uh, econ- economist who, who went on to positions in the Koch Foundation Koch, and, um, and basically laid out the strategy, the underlying stra- strategy, of Koch investments um, in, and their political stra- um, um, uh, strategy. What Richard Fink said is that you can use a conception of production the same way that Hyatt conceptualized production, and you can apply it instead of to widgets, you can apply it to social transformation. So if your outcome is to change society in a radical libertarian direction, you can think of that as your outcome. Okay, so where do you start? You start with the raw material. And he considered the academy as essential for producing raw material. The raw material is the ideas that are developed by academics about anarcho capitalism about the the threat of regulation the laffer curve all of this kind of arc libertarian n- nonsense right and you also create the and 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 you recruit the talent right you identify the young students you train them and you bring them into a network what they call the talent pipeline right then the ideas from think tanks or from the academy, the raw materials moves into think tanks and which is manufactured into public po- policy, refined into public policy and specific, uh, specific proposals. And then those specific propo- pro- proposals are then given to advocacy groups and, and outreach or, uh, or uh, organizations. And that would be Americans for Prosperity, FreedomWorks, these kinds of AstroTurf groups that kind of push the, agen- the agenda be it uh, uh, second rights amendments, stand your law ground, um, anti-union legislation, climate denial, um, anti-climate legislation, privatization of K-12, privatization of higher education, privatization of prisons, whatever the idea that was theorized by the academic developed in the think tank and then pushed out into these advocacy groups. And then your final objective is then the lawmakers who then pass the laws, right? So instead of the lobbyist as being, so so you can see that their integrated strategy, they call it an integrated strategy for social change, starts with higher education, deeply values higher education and seeks to not just affect policy outcomes, but to fundamentally transform how society operates by changing the ways that people think about very basic things and how action and political um, and social life is organized. So this is how we argue that it looks in the campus free speech um, a movement. So you have student groups like Students for Liberty, Americans for, Li- for, for Liberty, Young Americans for Freedom, Turning Point USA, all funded by Coke Donor Network and the plutocratic libertarian press. Right. You have provocateurs like Milo Yiannopoulos, Charles Murray, um, Ben Shapiro, whose whole careers can Candace Owens, Heather MacDonald, whose entire careers are funded within Coke think tanks, Coke funded think tanks and other or, uh, or organizations and media outlets. They, they the, stu- the student groups get, mo- get money from the plutocratic uh, Uh, of funded student groups to bring provocateurs to uh, to campus, media um, outlets that that are part of this outrage machine kind of get all hysterical about these speakers being denied access or about people protesting, Um, and then that gets transformed into groups like um, uh, uh, ALEC, uh, Goldwater Institute, FIRE, and others Pu- uh, pushing le- uh, legislative and legal solutions that put pressure on colleges and universities in order to make them change their free speech pol- policies in order to make them more susceptible to donor control right so free speech pre- predicated on first Am- amendment the claim is that everybody should be able to say what they want to say right academic free of, of freedom and the norms that exist in hi- in higher education talk about no, a knowledge as something that's vetted and so, and something that's socially produced inside disciplinary constraints right so free speech their argument is if you have a scientist who says climate change is happening here's the scientific evidence and you have somebody who says climate change is not happening a free speech argument which would, would say these two need equal time right um, and basically what their arguments around free speech is to break down the barriers that reduce and constrain donor control over higher education, right? And that's the under uh, the undergirding strat- strategy of, we- of weaponization of free speech. It's state, the same strategy that they used in tobacco legislation and the arguments around against um, Um, uh, of the illegal and political attack on tobacco. It's the same strategy they use for climate. It's the same strategy that they use for uh, for COVID uh, denial and for um, voter uh, uh, restriction laws, right? The same uh, kind of argument, right? Um, the, uh, one of the ways that this kind of the campus free speech works in practice um, is you have certain groups that are specialized. Remember, this is a conception of production, right? So there are coke funded and coke network funded groups that specialize in monitoring uh, higher education and producing outrage groups like Campus Reform, the College Fix, Turning Points that also fund Professor Watchlist. In the case of Campus Reform, they have $1.3 million a year in which to spy on professors and universities and to write outrage pieces in which they pay students between $50 and $100 per piece to monitor fa- faculty and, and to and. And those, those correspondents are, are, are contractually obligated to identify liberal bias among the faculty and, 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 and different policies that they're, they're writing about. Because this is a networked organization and a network structure and strategy, those stories that get generated, the raw material, the outrage raw material, if you will, that gets generated by groups like Campus Reform and, co- and College Fix quickly migrates into the Daily Call or Breitbart, da- Daily Wire, Fox News, et cetera, which, which have deep connections um, between these kinds of outlet um, outrage machines and these, me- these media organizations. The plutocratic libertarian right, like Leadership Institute, which funds campus re- reform they specialize in training journalists right young Americans for Liberty and other student groups also specialize in training uh, journalists and place many of them in these outlets that then pick up the stories by campus of reform and these these outlets oftentimes run stories that are basically verbatim from campus of reform so you can imagine being an 18 year old in your dorm paid a hundred dollars to write a story in an hour and then two two days later is on Tucker Carlson show it happens all the time Um, And so basically what what I've done is I've written about uh, this phenomenon and I started a project where I monitor campus reform. And when a story um, uh, targets a professor, I reach out to that professor with a series of of, of resources, basically saying, here's what campus reform is, here's who funds them, um, and here's how you can respond and how your administration could respond. I can put those links in the chat um, uh, uh, during uh, uh, the discussion. As a result of that work, we were able to field a survey with the AAUP with Hans uh, uh, Tita, uh, with Yorg Tita at the at the AAUP, who, who is their director of research, um, and we found a number of very very in, uh, interesting fi- findings in the sur- the survey of faculty who were targeted by campus re- uh, uh, reform in 2020. 78% of stories were in public forums. So while campus uh, reform claims to be rooting out bias in the on campus, they're actually um, identifying and writing about people's Twitter feeds and social media, right? Um, 40% of faculty received threats of violence following being written about in campus reform. And of the, top, of the topics uh, were, were, were covered, 42.5% uh, percent dealt uh, with race. Not only that, we found that of that 40% of faculty that received threats of, vi- of violence, almost 40% uh, percent said that they changed their social me- media presence as a result of... The, of uh, of those threats and, uh, le- and lesser percentages change their teaching and research agenda. But you can see this is ha- having exactly the intent the intended effect. You write an outrage piece about a faculty who says something about critical race theory or defund the police or about Trump, right? It goes from campus reform to Fox News. And all of a sudden there is this slew of harassment that beats down on, on those faculty. And now faculty ha- uh, ha- have to consider um, uh, you know how they present themselves in public and what they say on social m- m- media how, how they teach other class it's meant to look organic and as organic outrage but it's instead part of this this very clearly organized and integrated strategy of so- of social change that having uh, that's having hit, um um it's effect um case 2 is critical race theory so, let, so where does critical race theory and this outrage of critical race theory start about? This is going to be slightly different that, that, than the piece that I found uh, that, that I wrote in Inside Higher Education because I came across some new stuff, including great, great, great repeat, um, a repeating um, a report, r- reporting by Benjamin Wallace Wells in um, I believe it was the, Atlant- uh, the Atlantic. right? And he basically identifies the origin of critical race Chris Root, a Seattle guy, he was living, he was working for the Discovery Institute, which is a right-wing think tank that um, pushes um, creationism as a, a valid thing to teach in the classroom. Um, he got leaked some stuff about um, uh, sensitivity trainings that were taking place in Seattle that were, um, or, or, and then he wrote an outrage piece saying, can you believe this? The city of Seattle is asking its employees to contemplate their whiteness. This is outrageous. And then because of that that story um he's he he got leaked a bunch of other sensitivity tra- uh, trainings which he wrote up for pieces in the man the, the manhattan institute's C- city journal right the manhattan institute between 1998 and 2019 received 15 million dollars from the Koch foundation a uh, rufo is now a fellow at the claremont institute H- heritage foundation the st- Civic Research Institute and a correspondent at the Federalist Society, all organizations that are deeply, deeply, deeply integrated within the plutocratic libertarian donor network and receive considerable funding from Koch Foundation um, and others um, who, who attend his donor seminars, et cetera. In this piece, Rufo explicitly said it, that he picked critical race theory because it was the perfect villain, right? Unlike, uh, political correctness or, um, or, or wokeness, right? The that poli- that critical race theory had a certain r- a r- a ring to it that made it a perfect villain because everybody hates things that are critical, have to do with race and are theoretical as opposed to practical. So having nothing to do with the content of what critical race theory is, this was selected as a political strategy, right? That got blasted all through the right-wing think tank uh, infrastructure from the Manhattan mm-hmm. Institute, right? Then um, he goes on Tucker Carlson in September 2nd, who who comes across his material. The next day he gets a call from Mark Meadows, who says Trump is really interested in in, in this issue. This is um, uh, uh, President Trump's uh, uh, chief of staff at the time. Um, And then that is what leads to the executive uh, order to ban critical race theory um, and and sensitivity uh, trainings, right? In January 2021, there's a newly formed Center for Renewing America that is writing a lot of the legislation about critical race theory at the state level. That's run by Russ Boyd. Russ Voigt was the guy who wrote the executive order in the Trump White House. He's now working at a think tank and has not disclosed who his donors are, but, you know, we can have some clues about who they might be, right? And then at the same time, you have a group of grassroots organization. Uh, No left turn in education may may have a greater claim to being a grassroots organization, but it only exists as a viable um, entity because because of the platforming it gets from Tucker Carlson and this massive megaphone it gets. It it also has a well-documented explicit racism to it. Um, Parents Defending Education is a Coke funded it's a a bunch of Coke funded um, um, uh, veterans of um, uh, co-funded fun- uh, outrage machine that are basically creating these organizations that then create the infrastructure for, for parents to go to, to um, city ca- council meetings and school board me- uh, meetings and, and raise their concern over critical race theory. Right. So again, you see how this in, this, in, this integrated strategy feeds into each other, tries to look to look, look organic and is well funded at every step. Right. And the strategy is to undermine and attack those who are talking about issues that undermine a plutocratic libertarian agenda and critical race theory and the concept conception that that society is structured by the past bi- violences of, ra- of, racist, of racism and settler colonialism is an existential threat to libertarian economics that, want, that, that wants us to live in a fantasy land that we are all free to choose our own futures um, as rational individuals in a, per- a perfectly uh, rational mar- a market. Right. Um, and so this is not only Powell mem- Memo neoliberalism, li- li- it's Powell mem- Memo neoliberalism li- li- on steroids that's been integrated and networked for 50 years, is incre- incredibly well-funded, um, with people moving back and forth across this network, students being on our on our class on our campuses being drawn into the net um, into the network um, and trained to become activists and provocateurs um, in this particular organized, integrated, and incredibly successful political strategy. Steve Bannon has declared that critical race theory is going to be the Repu- the Republicans' campaign in twenty twenty two.
0: Thank you very much. Wonderful. I mean, uh, what you've done uh, in your work is just spectacular because you <laughs> you take names, uh, give locations, and fit it all together for us. And then what I was thinking, and others may think the same thing, I'm sure, you go, duh, sure, this is coordinated. Uh, this is a networked activity. But what we read in the paper, we don't know, you know we don't realize how things got there. So Thank you very much, Isaac, very much appreciated. Beth, um, I wanna start by uh, quoting uh, something from your your, uh, article in Academe that I think fits so well and links to uh, what what Isaac just presented. Uh, Quote, the growing dependence on philanthropic giving coupled with the shift toward donor empowerment in gifts to restrict gifts has rendered universities vulnerable to undo undo outside influence. That came to a head in 2016, when the Koch Foundation and an unnamed donor gave GMU $30 million. So you've experienced significantly as a faculty member, what Isaac has been talking about. So please your thoughts about Isaac's presentation and also share uh, with our audience uh, your perspective and experience.
2: Well, thanks. Um, you know, I wasn't going to present a uh, PowerPoint, but as I was listening to Isaac, I thought maybe I'll pick up uh, where um, I've given this talk uh, about uh, undue donor influence at, at Mason, but maybe I'll just uh, add a couple of slides to to really show further still what Isaac was talking about, about how how this actually works on the ground at a particular institution at my institution. And um, let me just Hit um, play here. You all can see my slides. I take it. So, um, yeah, you know, and I still appreciate Isaac your work. Uh, I was um, I was one of those faculty followed around by a reporter student from the College Fix who would just uh, shove his cell phone camera in my face during faculty senate meetings. Uh, during uh, all kinds of just, uh, you know, meetings, and then he would write about uh, what I was saying, uh, and it would show up on the college fix, and then, of course, it got picked up by um, broader outlets, and it um, it is daunting when that happens. I mean, it is an effective strategy, because it does create anxiety, and, you know, and you do get hate mail and threats, um, and you have to then discern whether those threats are, um, are real or what you should do about them. Um, it is very silencing. So let me tell you a little bit about um, about uh, how this you know how Isaac's <laughs> uh, uh, you know presentation actually lands on the ground at Mason and you know and 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 George Mason is by far the uh, the biggest recipient of Coke. Of uh, funding uh, um, has received well over 120 million. I, I've lost count. It's well over $120 million now from the Cokes. And what we see at Mason is that this cash buys you academic capture. Uh, and I draw that uh, term from um, and, and have been following Dave Rapich and some of his work on an academic capture and what that means. Um, in particular, the Kochs have captured the law school and the econ department at our institution. But uh, in addition to capturing uh, units, um, the Kochs have established with Richard Fink and others, um, various entities on campus. They're all 501 c 3 nonprofits, which is important because that means they're guaranteed uh, privacy. Uh, but yet they're affiliated with the university, which gives them a veneer of academic uh, legitimacy. Uh, We have the Institute for Humane Studies that Charles Koch is still involved with, uh, the Mercatus Center, uh, which, um, you know, does a tremendous amount of lobbying work uh, and uh, the Law and Economics Center, which, um, you know, is, uh, you know, shamelessly, you know, uh, offering these seminars to judges and attorneys general on you know, how to, to you know, make rulings in the court that, are, you know, that support free market ideology, essentially. Um, in 2016, as Frank mentioned, in 2016, the university received $30 million, 20 million from uh, the Charles Cook, uh, excuse me, 20 million from an anonymous donor, connected to Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society and another 10 million from the Charles Koch Foundation. And with those dollars, the university agreed to rename our law school uh, than Antonin Scalia uh, Law School. And, you know, and here you see the Law and Economic Center uh, when President Trump took office, just brazenly talking about how this is an opportunity to take advantage of this once in a generation opportunity to shape the contours of federal law for decades to come uh, you know, um, developing a courses and curricula expressly designed to educate new federal judges who will be, will be appointed in the coming year. I mean, this is coming from an academic unit <laughs> uh, with uh, very explicit plans of how to capture the courts. Uh, so, you know, the, the timeline for uh, faculty organizing along with student organizing started a long time ago in, in 2010 really when Jane Mayer's book came out exposing the Coke network ties to GM, uh, GMU and really it was the students and just a handful of professors who started uh, to take note and, um, and begin to organize and students uh, started to FOIA the university for Coke-related gift agreements to try to understand was there undue donor influence going on at Mason? Uh, and unfortunately, uh, the GMU Foundation, like many university foundations, uh, is a 501c3 entity. And they said, uh, we, uh, the foundation does not adhere to uh, Virginia FOIA laws. And so ultimately the, the students sued Uh, the university and the foundation uh, to try to gain access to the records so that you could follow the money, uh, this undue donor influence at Mason. And unfortunately, that case went all the way to the Virginia Supreme Court, uh, which ruled that the foundation was a private entity, even though it's on our campus, uh, even though the foundation funds 75% of the president's uh, salary, uh, uh, you know, with these Coke dollars coming through, uh, you know, um, but yet it's private and we can't see the terms of the deal. Uh, and to make a, a, a really uh, long story uh, short, um, the faculty with the student group uh, fought really hard to expose under donor influence and to expose these the, the ways in which all of this is churned out by these different entities on our campus, uh, uh, to you know, promote anti-labor, anti-government, <laughs> anti uh, climate science, anti you know all of these things. And um, while the university pushed back hard and called us conspiracy theorists, said, you know this is not true. Uh, ultimately, uh, these gift agreements were revealed because of the lawsuit and uh, and we got our smoking gun in 2018. And uh, since then we're able to at least uh, begin to revise um, policies at the university to state that when the university accepts money from the foundation, it has to put in writing the terms and conditions of the gift agreement such that faculty should be able to discern to at least some extent. what the universe, you know—what these donors are getting for the giving, unfortunately, uh, and you know, and and I'll add, the state of Virginia, we worked with legislators, and the state actually passed new FOIA laws that all uh, state universities have to adhere to these new disclosure laws uh, with regard to these gifts uh, coming from the foundation to the university. However, who sits on? The committees that that is monitoring all of this, and you know, it's perhaps one or two faculty members, and the rest are foundation folk and administrators, and so it's very difficult to to make sure that even these policies are being adhered to. And there's some um, instances at the university that, um, and I'll just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna push through all of this. Sorry. Um, just to make one final point, because there there is some um, some evidence at the university that you know these uh, gifts are still not being um, um, you know scrutinized fully, and that the administration is continuing to support the foundation and saying these gifts don't apply to the law. Uh, and one example is. Uh, George Mason's University's uh, Global Antitrust Institute. And um, and that work has been covered in the New York Times and, and other um, press outlets. Um, so I think I will, um, I'm going to pause my, I'm going to stop sharing this <laughs> and make just a few more quick comments um, uh, about um, you know what Isaac is putting out there and where I see, uh, You know where we need to go forward and and really my call to action is is complex, it it has to begin truly organically, not a fake organic (laughs) but truly organically faculty have to. uh, begin to organize in earnest Uh, faculty, particularly faculty who have power on campus must organize and begin to. Uh, really pushed back against this assault on higher education and academic freedom. Um, For too long, faculty have, uh, um, whether it's with naivete or just with a disinterest, I don't know, um, have not really dug in. And in fact, many faculty on campus push back against faculty organizing because they think it's disruptive or that it's too conflictual and they don't want to be a part of that. However, um, we must get used to conflict because we're in one, right? We are in a, a war, uh, uh, not not one we asked for, but clearly there is a culture war that is upon us and we must respond. Uh, it is no longer uh, adequate to simply um, you know, put our heads in the sand and say, well, our research is too important. Uh, we can't take time out to uh, engage over here and support other faculty and colleagues who are fighting back. But beyond you know, what faculty and students can do, um, you know, Brendan Cantwell had a piece out today in, uh, in the Chronicle of Higher Education talking about how you know, presidents and administrators have got to start fighting back. And it is true, uh, presidents need to, uh, need to step in and step up and start fighting. Uh, you saw what happened at UNC Chapel Hill when administrators didn't uh, step up and uh, they lost big time, you know, and, um, and so they need to step up. But as Frank mentioned to me earlier, you know, presidents serve at the pleasure of boards, right? And so, when you really want to think about where do things need to change, we need new board governance. We need new policies. Uh, at our institution, faculty one faculty member and one staff member I uh, get to sit um, on uh, the board as non-voting members. Uh, imagine if we had a board governing the university that actually had. Empowered faculty and students, and uh, gave them more voice to protect academic freedom uh, and to push back against uh, corporate uh, uh, influence uh, on in higher education. Um, so, you know, we we must uh, there must be a multi layered, uh, you know, coalition uh, that is built to push back against this. And unfortunately the university for too long has thought perhaps of itself as uh, above the fray of organizing or above the fray of of getting into these, um, you know, into these contests um, uh, to our peril. And so, you know, I hope that we can inspire uh, faculty um, uh, to push in, to dig in hard uh, thanks, Isaac. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta increase my, I gotta increase my numbers. <laughs> it's, I'm in denial, <laughs> you know. But we need, um, you know. So I'll, I'll end there. But I thank you again for, um, for bringing this, uh, uh, these issues to the fore and letting us speak to them because, um, you know, we need to just, keep, we need to keep pushing forward. Uh, there's too much at stake uh, to include our very democracy. So thank you.
0: Well, thank you so much. Um, The work that both of you are doing is so important. You know, you used a word transparency, which is so critical here. And when you think about the chilling effect of the recent uh, opinion decision, actually, by the Supreme Court of the United States with respect to what's happening in California, these big donors can continue their work uh, and not be identified. And there is a, uh, thinking about your presentation in relationship to Isaac's Isaac begins his Inside Higher Education article with a very important sentence. Uh, And he says, he writes, there are now numerous, well-documented examples of wealthy right-wing and libertarian donors. This is the critical part for me of this sentence, using their wealth to transform higher education in their own image. And I was thinking about that the other day uh, with respect to (laughs) my days in Uh, Nathan in Sociology 101. And the concept of cultural imperialism was always used back then to talk about what nation states have done. Cultural imperialism is exactly what has been happening. The the seeking of cultural transformation. uh, And as Isaac said, higher education is viewed as a very, very critical institution, there's a cascading effect. We have to capture using the word that Beth used, If we can capture higher education, we can start that cascading or domino effect and begin to bring about change otherwise we may not be able to do. And so the amount of money that's being invested, I won't even call it an investment, that is being used is incredible. Well, Ruben and I have had numerous conversations about how, I will use the word, how frightened we are with respect to what has been happening. It's accelerating and magnifying and deepening. So let me turn to Ruben for your observations. Uh, Ruben, not only in response to Isaac uh, and Beth's presentations, but certainly your thoughts.
3: Thank you, Frank. Uh, I want to start, first of all, for thanking Isaac for presenting that uh, excellent uh, set of ideas regarding the structure of the right-wing attack on uh, higher education. Uh, We are, I think, the last sector in society uh, to be targeted perhaps for good reason. (laughs) There are smart boys and girls in our institution. So uh, perhaps uh, it would not have gone well to have started with us, but here we are. uh, And we are the last, uh, both uh, with the responsibility of saving democracy and certainly saving academic freedom. When he talks about the uh, structure of right-wing attacks, I'm reminded of the notion of interlocking directorates, uh, which kind of hit the scene uh, a few decades ago. Uh, when there was a lot of discussion about whether or not there was a ruling class in this uh, in our society and so on. Today we call it the plutocracy, and I don't think that any uh, uh, rational intellectual in our society can deny that one exists today. Uh, I am uh, uh, really pleased with how well the two presentations fit together. Uh, we hear a presentation uh, on a framework on how the attacks are taking place, and then we hear in, in short a um, case study of how this has transpired over at uh, George Mason University. Uh, It's just wonderful stuff and I certainly agree uh, with Beth that uh, uh, we need to organize uh, and uh, perhaps faculty don't see themselves as being uh, uh, responsible for standing up and you know taking the time to organize and so forth but uh, if we don't Uh, we will lose the university in terms of how we understand it, in terms of the idea of a university that is supposed to both provide uh, uh, guidance to larger society, but also criticism, uh, and certainly providing the greatest opportunities for the young uh, to learn about the world in which they live. I wanna say just a few things about uh, uh, critical race theory or CRT as it has uh, uh, often been called. uh, And that is that this has been an intentional attack on CRT, uh, but uh, as is the case usually, uh, most of these attacks by, the, uh, by conservatives are distortions to uh, engender what Isaac calls moral outrage. Certainly that is what is going on here. Uh, and they are masters of propaganda. They choose their concepts well. Uh, you know, uh, when I first heard about neoliberalism in 1984, uh, my chair at the time was complaining about the notion of students as, as customers. Uh, and, uh, you know, I kept hearing the notions of choice and freedom and so forth. And, you know, who can argue with those concepts? But what we need to understand is that they are used in a very restricted and narrow sense. Uh, and they are used to manipulate uh, the, the uh, collective attitudes in our society. We need to uh, really uh, focus on that. We need to also uh, recognize that in fact, this country is indeed founded on governance documents that privilege property to white men. And so CRT is being attacked for saying that uh, uh, this country is founded on uh, racist principles. Well, what rational intellectual would deny that, right? That's, that's certainly the case and the documents are there to be read and the words run across paper and you can read them. They are there, there's no question about that. Uh, I, you know, When we get back to this coordinated attack, we need to think about the fact that ALEC exists as an organization, American Legislative Exchange Council, that it develops models uh, for conservatives, conservative politicians, and that they distribute these across the country, and it is no accident that we see uh, very similar policies Uh, being uh, introduced in our state legislatures across the country almost simultaneously, right? I mean, like it's impossible that all of these people could have the same ideas at the same time. This is a coordinated attack, this is how it works. When we take a look at uh, the attack on uh, critical race theory, uh, you know, it probably began uh, as uh, Isaac uh, talks about uh, before President Trump issued his executive order 13950. Uh, And when we look at these documents, it's kind of interesting because they're kind of a mixed thing. They have some very positive statements, in my view, like, uh, for example, in that particular executive order, we should not promote views that one race is superior to another. Who can argue with that, right? Yes, that's what we're trying to do. That's what critical race theory says as well, right? Uh, We should not promote views that one sex is superior to another, yet again a very uh, positive statement, we should not be doing that. Uh, but then there are also some statements in there that are kind of mixed in that says that we should not say that the United States is a basically racist society. Uh, again, uh, that is something to be debated. There are documents that show us that it is. Uh, and that uh, they're, then they go back to the positive. That is, every person should be respected. So we have this mix of things that if you're not a, a critical thinker, if you're not one paying attention to the language, you could get very mixed up with. And in fact, in many instances, it's intended to kind of engender that moral outrage that Isaac was talking about. So the order itself is not all that terrible. What is terrible is the uh, memorandum of implementation, if you will, that was put forth by Russell Voigt, uh, the director of the executive uh, uh, office of the White House, where uh, you know, sanctions are talked about and specific concepts and, and, and ideas are identified. So he's the one that identifies critical race theory as something that should be looked at as an indicator of possibly violating the order. Then there is the notion of intersectionality. We should not be talking about intersectionality, uh, which is kind of interesting because back in the 90s, I was using the notion of gender as a statistical concept to, to make some statistical comparisons because I was getting tired of women and Latinas not being uh, pulled out in a uh, combined way so that we could really understand the way, the, the conditions in which Latinas were living, right? And being able to compare them to others. Uh, there are issues of systemic racism. If we talk about systemic racism, that's an indicator that we might be doing something that would be against the executive order. So there are lots of things that are both confusing and, and probably uh, uh, very, very uh, discouraging for, for both those who are targeted and those who are morally outraged. It kind of uh, gives us a, a mix of things. But one thing we can talk about is that these approaches tend to deny history. I mean, part of uh, neoliberalism, the ideology of neoliberalism, has been to deny that there are social structures, that there are only individuals, that there are not any groups. So all these notions of institutional racism uh, supposedly do not exist. And we were getting these from people who were not even intellectuals, right? Uh, People who were in government, both in England, here in the United States, telling us these kinds of things. Uh, And people, you know, at large believe them because they're in positions of power, they're in positions of authority. Uh, So we need to recognize that uh, all of this is distortion. We know that CRT does not do what these critics say. In fact, I don't think that they really understand what CRT is, you know. I am a sociologist, so I view CRT as sort of uh, old wine in new bottles, really. I mean, like if we go back to the 30s, 40s, 50s and and so on, there were a considerable number of of race relations theories and other theories that are out there. But my concern is this, if they can go after CRT, which really comes out of an applied field law, uh, then the next step is to go uh, for us, those of us who are, students of intergroup relations and race relations in sociology and other fields, then we won't be able to study those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, it gives uh, uh, some substance to that old view that uh, if you give them an inch, they'll take a foot. And I truly believe that this is what they would want to do. So one of the things that we need to do is to recognize that uh, the university is under attack, that they're using CRT as a ploy, as a bogeyman, if you will, Uh, to mobilize followers to uh, take on the university and also to keep in mind that the academy uh, is probably the most important uh, institution in our society when it comes to preserving democracy and to preserving academic freedom. Uh, In fact, academic freedom is grounded on notions of freedom and democracy itself. So we need to be able to take that. We cannot reduce education to a series of career school steps in which all we're doing is providing a pipeline of students to industry. What we are about and should be about is to recognize that education is one of the most important socialization features, practices in our society that is intended to develop the human faculties of as many people at the highest levels possible so that we can move our society forward toward a higher level of civilization. And I would submit that the neoliberals have a very limited view of civilization and a very limited view of human freedom. And it is the responsibility of our generation to be able to defend and to ensure that in the academy, whether it's in K through 12 or in in higher education, that we are free to teach and that we are free to study. I want to thank our speakers today for their eloquent presentations, uh, very inspirational. And I'm looking forward to someday uh, being able to also deliver the kinds of resources that Isaac, I think, and others have been delivering to faculty who have been attacked and who have been uh, threatened Uh, because really that is no way to conduct ourselves in in our society at this day and age. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, wonderful, Ruben. Thank you so much for sharing that. Let's open it up for discussion, questions and answers, commentary. Uh, Nathan, uh, you have your hand up.
4: Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, I really um, enjoyed listening to the presentations by Isaac and, and Bethany. Um, I have to go pretty soon to uh, to attend another meeting, but I um, I wrote down some some of my own observations and reflections, and I wanted to share them before I I had to go. Um, history re- history reflects feudalism. Li- uh, liberal reform has occasionally pushed back for the lines. Of power are drawn. But feudalism to today is alive and well. One of the biggest challenges today is that conservatives work in consort while liberals work individually, particularly among academics or intellectuals who are great at critique but not necessarily working together. Professional associations such as the AAUP the American Sociological Association, the American Medical Association need to show leadership by working together to form a unified political educational interest group.
0: Mm. agree. Well stated. Response, please. Anyone? Terry, you're up.
5: Um, Yeah, I, I sort of recognize Nathan's thought because at one point I asked him what do we do next and it's basically organized professional organizations which doesn't sound like a banner rallying cry but it sure makes sense and this might be relevant to Frank I, I shared with him the name Carol Churchill who was a, a anti-neoliberalism British author, I didn't identify her that way till Frank did. But there's a book that came out in 1975, written by William Gaddis, a long satirical novel called J.R. And I just had to check the date. Oh, yeah, about a year after that Powell memo. And its premises, okay, some capitalists think let's put advertisements in textbooks, who could object to that? And gradually, everything goes down the tubes. The anti-hero of it is a disruptive young student who buys uh, out-of-date penny stocks from a failed clothing company, not called Berkshire Hathaway, but is an evil genius. I am going to reread that, and if anyone has time to read a horrifying 500 page novel, do read Gaddis's JR. Anyhow, that's my English professorly input onto it. And otherwise I, I'm terrified by what you speakers have said. It, it makes me feel like I've been punched in the stomach. Thanks a bunch, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Very good.
2: Now, if I can if I can jump in, you know, I, I did wanna thank Ruben uh, for, you know, Recentering us around uh, the the focus on critical race theory and the, and the current attacks uh, that are um, you know uh, really bolstering white supremacy and and this notion of whiteness as property is is really really important for us to hold on to and I and I it, it's just making me think too in terms of next steps um, you know and and what's at stake here and. You know, and I just think, um, you know, who are the faculty who are teaching about critical race theory, who are applying critical race theory, and so many of them are faculty of color, are uh, who, you know, already are um, confronted by a system that is, uh, you know, uh, heteronormative, patriarchal, and supremacist <laughs> in terms of uh, in terms of um, Uh, um, you know, race and, you know, so I I think it's really critical that those of us who can need to step up, step in front of this, uh, particularly white academics um, who have been the recipients of this white advantage and privilege for a long time and uh, to grapple with that uh, and and to use that privilege and that power, some of it unearned uh, and and to really confront systems and confront not just just the neoliberalist pressure and the undue donor influence, but ultimately the university itself uh, needs to be uh, interrogated and uh, we need to really think about how our own systems are perpetuating so much of this. I mean, we, we've backed ourselves into a corner uh, in many ways. And so while we're fighting the good fight, we also really need to think about um, how systems change must occur uh, within the academy as well. Um, uh, there's a lot of work to do, and so you know I echo Nathan's remarks of you know ultimately uh, faculty, uh, students, professional organizations. There really does need to be this great uh, mobilizing uh, moment. And I'll and I'll I'll add one more thing. At Mason, we've actually formed the GMU Coalition for Worker Rights, hmm. and this. Um, Combines not just the interests of faculty and staff, but also all the con- the contract workers who support our universities, but yet are often incredibly marginalized in terms of their pay, access to benefits, and worker rights, which of course is very kokian <laughs> in its infrastructure, uh, you know. And um, but building out coalitions to include labor, uh, to include you know, our our union brothers and sisters, even in states that are right to work like Virginia, which we hope to change uh, very soon. uh, But, you know, we must think broader about uh, the coalition building efforts that is going to take to push back against this massive, well-funded, well-coordinated and networked uh, movement uh, to really, you know, destroy our institution as we know it.
0: Mm Very well stated. And, and one of the things that, that I see, and I'm sure all of you do too, is that there is significant, these ideas and approaches are taking, there's a response from the grassroots, from the general public. One of the things that I do regularly is read letters to the editor. And um, it's a sobering experience because many of the things we're talking about today uh, in a, you know, sort of a lay person's way are being written about by everyday c- citizens in their letters to the editor. And they're applauding this, this work, uh, because that's what America needs to be. And so, for example, they will speak out against critical race theory. Uh, and anyone who is in support of critical race theory uh, will be, la- and I've read this will be labeled a racist. Uh, and that's you know, everyday people writing letters uh, to, you know, to the press. And so um, this is a wake-up call for all of us. And I think what you're expressing, Beth, makes, makes a lot of sense. The coalitions are necessary, and Nathan, um, there needs to be organized activity uh, uh, by professional organizations to identify this as a very important issue. I mean, this is evolving, but it's gotten to the point now we're in a code red situation. Other comments, please.
1: Yeah. Can, can I just jump in here? Sure. Um, the Powell memo is really interesting, not to go back to that. Because in 71, Powell explicitly says that we can use the arguments around academic freedom to drive a wedge into the left. right? Because you, we will say, if one part of the left will, will say, we can't allow this kind of stuff on, on campus, we have to kick Milo Yiannopoulos out, we can't hear this nonsense and the other half will say, well, the, the opposite of, good spe- of bad speech is more good speech, right? So right from the beginning of this kind of how can corporations and the business community and the Chamber of Commerce exert greater influence over higher education to steer the types of conversations that are taking place there, back in 71, there's a clear understanding that the language of free speech, the language of academic freedom is that important wedge issue. And I think it's also important to kind of realize that the critical race theory and the racist elements of that argument against critical race theory also goes back, right? That 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 Powell himself was an advocate for vouchers and the privatization of, of K-12 education after Brown v. Board. Koch's father was one of the founders of the John Birch Society. Um, there's this long tradition and then to this day, groups like Turning Points, USA, Young Americans for Liberty are training grounds for white supremacists on college campuses and explicitly so, right? The the white supremacists brag about how these student groups have been effective vectors into campus, right? So in a way there's a tradition and not only that, the language of, of students as consumers goes back to the Cato Institute, goes back to James Buchanan, right, thinking about how can we make sure that 68 at Berkeley never happens again, right? Well, you have to make sure students begin to conceptualize their education as a private personal investment. And you do that through student debt, right? So in a way we're seeing outcomes of a strategy. And so I think that, that Bethany's claim that we need a similar robust response or else it's just gonna be whack-a-mole, right? If, if, if the idea is, how can we make the public understand that critical race theory is not what the right set says it, does? it is, you're just paying wa- a whack-a-mole, because the next thing will be the same organization will, ge- will gin up uh, the same thing, right? And so I think that that idea of, of of a strategy of conceptualizing an alternative future that, as Ruben points out, is more emancipatory in its perspective, more humane, doesn't reduce hu- human beings to rote economic calculators but has a robust conception of humanity and humans potential that needs to be the foundation for an organizer a response that also understands the university's role in that um, at, uh, as well and defends that role um, and and recognize that it has to defend it without, as much influence, uh, without as much resources. And I think it's really important that this is an argument that Nancy McLean starts her book with uh, Democracy in Chains, right? Is that this is a stealth organization. This is dark money, right? This is, people don't like it when they hear about the truth of the amount of money that's behind here. And it only works if it appears to be organic and not plutocratic uh, 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 driven, right? So that argument of following the money and, and, and train, training ourselves whenever we see something, right? Why is the right all of a sudden talking about critical race theory? Why are they all of a sudden talking about wokeness? Why are they, why are there all of these bills um, uh, 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 around, um, um, you know, uh, uh, union rights? Where's all this coming from? Like. Be be skeptical, right? Be assume that it's coming from big money and not from a disagreement among good actors engaging in rational conversation about the good of society, right? Because this is a, a deeply political organization. It was um, you know, like it was Murray Rothbart who went to Charles Koch and said, you have to read Lenin, right? We are trying to seize the state we are trying to seize the state in order to destroy the state, right? They understand it as a revolution. They understand it as a radical transformation of society. And if we don't defend it with the same type of understanding and an understanding of the stakes, then I think that that, 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 that we'll always be doomed. Um, I, I'm gonna throw, if you don't mind, the uh, the links to the resources I've developed around campus reform into the chat box if people are interested in kind of seeing. The, right.
0: the- Thank you very much. We have a few minutes left, Ruben. I see your hand up.
3: Yeah, uh, and also
0: Jan, did I see your hand up too? Yeah.
3: Well, I'll, I'll let Jan go first because I've already spoken, and if there's time left, I'll make a few comments.
6: All right. Well, first of all, I just want to thank everybody. Um, there should be a thousand people on this call, and I think I don't think we should settle for for less than that. So I think we, you know, just picking up on what Bethany and and Isaac said. Um, so I'll, you know, I'll just share a couple of very random thoughts. I mean, for one thing, like what, this reminded me, I don't even really play in this space formally like you do. So I'm, I'm really uh, um, uh, intimidated in some ways by, by all of your work, but um, not that long ago, there was a voice message on my work, uh, my work number calling for my firing because of social media posts that I apparently was making. Um, on on certain websites, and of course it was nonsense, but this call went on and on. And I contacted my son who's a young academic, and he said, oh yeah, that's going on all over the country. Um, They're really orchestrated (coughs) efforts of intimidation that set you back, and they certainly are gonna set you back if if you're not protected either by tenure and and by, by a supportive institution. I mean, I just wrote it off, we deleted it and ignored it, but then I thought, how how often is this happening? So I kind of feel like I feel just listening to you. You know, it's like frogs boiling in a pot. We've been frog. I feel like I've been a frog in a pot for thirty five years. And um, those of you at MSU know a little bit about my work. I'm sort of a participant observer in this space. Um, I have been funded uh, through private sources, uh, in, at least in part. So I have I have personally felt the incentives. From the university externally, um, and you know, so I've sort of uh, and the chilling effect, frankly, frankly. And I, I just think it's, I think it's undeniable that you navigate differently when you're dependent, and your and your livelihood, it, you know, becomes dependent. I've tried to do that ethically and responsibly, and I've uh, pushed back on any attempts uh, you know, uh, that, that I have felt were inappropriate, but also in my field, and I work on essential, providing essential services to people, utility services, infrastructure. And what I've seen, it, the influence I've seen here is, and that I'm trying to work on now, is sort of to this sort of relentless uh, dominance of the economics paradigm, which can be a useful set of tools, but we look at everything that way and we forget about social justice and we forget about public health and we just, we're not. And so lately I've been challenging people that instead of looking at the way we provide these services, you know, instead of only looking at it that way, what if we shift, let's look at it over here. And then people go, oh yeah, you know, and so there is there is a, a maybe just a, a, a glimmer of hope there. But then just listening to, to you like, it's uh, you know as Isaac just said it's very stealth you know a lot of this has been very stealth but also I'm struck by how open it is uh, George Mason I mean that's an that's an open secret right I mean in my field it's an open secret we have uh, we have regulatory groups that are sponsored by regulated industries and they put their logos out there quite visibly you know uh, they're they're not uh, they don't see any conflict there. Um, they'll have you know minor rules that that supposedly you know uh, are, you know are, are create some boundaries but um, uh, so but so I think I think it's but yet at the same time I think you're only um, you're only looking at the tip of the iceberg I think this is much deeper and much broader and has much more an effect you um, Uh, that then we realize um, I was reminded of uh, you know coke is just more the more obvious I was reminded of there was a good NPR story a couple years ago some of you probably heard it about I think they used the term fairness bias or you know what Isaac you know talked about this false equivalence that and I've seen it in my field oh well if you're going to have a panel and somebody sees it this way then you've got to have somebody who sees it that way as if their uh, opinions somehow are are equally you know, grounded. And how do we how do we, you know, address that? I'm really glad to see political science in this because, uh, it, which is my my uh, training, um, and talking about things like capture, which I can tell you is is very real. Um, it w- it's a theory that has come and gone, but it's uh, it, it's uh, regulatory capture, legislative capture now, very, very real. And that leads right to I think academic capture as well. Um, I'm glad to see you know more focus. There needs to be more focus on agenda setting, not just you know like because I do think again that's where it's, there's this subtle, maybe not so subtle effect on what people study and how you know how they study it and whether they're funded and supported to study it. Um, there's a whole lot we don't study. I mean, and, and critical race, you know, it's becoming this example of you know why you know we shouldn't have to fight to study something you know so important. Um, and power dynamics, power dynamics within the university, within, within ins- institutions. I'm really glad to hear you, you focusing that, on that. Um, so uh, Ruben kind of alluded to a, a working paper I had a few years ago called Selling Truth to Power, where I uh, tried to tackle the idea of, well, what if you do take money? What if you do take support? Uh, what are the ground rules? How do you navigate that? How do you so at least like be explicit, you know, and in and in, in at least you're th- that it, at least you're thinking about it. But it, but even though I wrote it a few years ago, like I, I put the brakes because I thought like things have even gotten so worse in the last few years. I'm not sure that I would uh, write it the same way. Um, and then just picking up on these last couple of themes, uh, I absolutely think we need alliances across campuses, within campuses. With journalists, with law schools, with other institutions, with other watchdogs, um, it's got to be multifaceted. Um, and 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 also, we're going to have to think hard about um, fighting deep pockets with other deep pockets. Um, there, there, you know. And and I think we will need to start thinking about the implications of of funding from. You know, sort because this is going to come up as an issue. You know, who's going to fund sort of the counter movement, and how do we address that? And I think, you know, and also I think we need to think that through, and we need to think about, um, you know, whether this should be framed ideologically, which always makes me a little bit nervous because I think it's such it's more even foundational than that. It's about institutions, it's about core values, and it's about the survival of, um, you know, no less than democracy, no less than justice. And I think, so I think we have to be really um, that we just need a lot there's a lot of work to be done in this space. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but um, I think also, frankly, I think engaging and motivating with the young people who have made, who have made a mark in areas like climate change. I mean, I think that's going to be an essential part of this too. I think you know that really the future will be in their hands uh, sooner <laughs> rather than later. So, um, but I just commend all of you for, for your great work in this area. I think it's I think it's just um, could not be more important.
0: Thank you, Jan. Very well stated, articulate as always. Uh, I'm looking at uh, the watch here, and we're winding down. So, Ruben, why don't we uh, turn to you for final comments, and then go to Bethany, and finally. Isaac, and then we'll close the program.
3: Thank you, Frank. Yeah, I just uh, was reminded of the uh, work by uh, poet poet musician, Gil Scott Heron, uh, who in one of his albums talked about how the uh, conservatives had made uh, up look down and what was right made to look wrong. Uh, I think that's the kind of situation that we find ourselves in today. Uh, CRT is presented as a racist theory, but in fact, it is an anti-racism perspective that seeks to dismantle institutional racism. And that's something that we need to say over and over again, because as you know, uh, if you repeat things as people, it kind of takes hold, <laughs> um, particularly on the part of some people who are, are not well grounded in some uh, uh, notions of reality. Uh, we should also, I've been looking lately at some of the hearings that were conducted by the uh, House uh, in the 1960s regarding the new left and so forth. Uh, and was very pleased to see that uh, faculty organized themselves. They did not, they were not always union, they had these associations and organizations, but faculty have risen and protected themselves. They did it not only during the period of the anti uh, Vietnam uh, War movement, but also during McCarthyism. And certainly, I think if we go back to the period of Nazism, uh, we will find that faculty did, in fact, uh, organize themselves. And so there's an opportunity here to recognize that this kind of massive threat does lead to people having to mobilize themselves and defend uh, what they consider most important. Uh, and academic freedom, I think, is most important right now for those of us in the academy. And that is, it is likely to be defended by those on, uh, who are conservative. It is, de- who are it is likely to be defended by those who are liberals. and It is likely to be defended by those who are on the left. So uh, this is an opportunity actually to work together and to ensure that academic freedom is uh, preserved. Uh, We see today that in the broader uh, sphere of politics, uh, that the pendulum is starting to swing. Uh, We see what Biden is doing, uh, the kinds of legislation that he is proposing and so forth. Uh, And so I think this is an opportunity historical opportunity to, for us. And of course, this is gonna ripple through for a long time, who knows how long, uh, but it's an opportunity, I think, to write things that have gone wrong in our society. Uh, and as long as that pen, pendulum keeps moving in that direction, we've got to get behind it and keep, keep make sure that it keeps moving uh, to the center uh, because the conservatives have moved the uh, goalposts here uh, and made the center Uh, basically some kind of uh, conservative uh, position and everything uh, on the left side of that is supposed to be some kind of communist uh, bogeyman and socialist but uh, you know uh, nobody talks about the liberals but there is still a liberal center here that we need to work with uh, and that uh, is going to be uh, i think uh, most important in making sure that that pendulum continues to move thank you
0: thank you Ruben and also i want to say to the audience and all of those of you assembled You may know this, but we wouldn't be here if it weren't for Ruben. He is the person who is the uh, lead organizer, the founder of Future U, and uh, it's the reason why we can keep these conversations going, and it it takes leadership. People have to step forward, and that's what leadership is. Uh, Talking about leadership, Bethany, uh, your final comments.
2: Well, I, you know, thank you again all for the great conversation, and it, it always inspires me to be a part of these panels and keeps me going. So I really appreciate the the lift. Um, you know, I CRT might be a provocative topic uh, to 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 you know continue to you know for the the neoliberal movement. You know, this you know for them to to make these uh, gains. But it's also maybe a bridge too far, I don't know. I, I, I'm hoping that faculty will say enough is enough. Okay, uh, let's let's come on now. Um, this is silly. And uh, we really, may, maybe it will be the kind of um, motivating force that is necessary to, to see more uh, folks push in and push up. And it made me think Ruben about not only the importance of fighting to protect academic freedom, but of course, Uh, We haven't really even scratched the surface of talking about shared governance and, and, you know, the real role of faculty in the academy to control, you know, curricula and that sort of thing. And, you know, and this is just an opportunity for us to really uh, come back together and uh, reimagine uh, these systems uh, to be more uh, socially and, and racially just uh, and, and really to push forward uh, to demand uh, shared governance. Of course, we have a lot of work to do. But thank you again for, uh, for this opportunity.
0: Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Beth. Isaac, we'll give you last, the last word.
1: Yeah, thanks again to uh, Frank and Ruben and Bethany. It's been really a pleasure to be here. And I'm really, like Bethany says, it's so optimistic to hear other people who are working in this space. And the work that you've done at GMU is just incredible. And the students and transparency GMU movement, I think is a real model. Um, It's important to also give a shout out to other organizations that are doing this work in this space. Uh, Uncoke My Campus does r- r- a really good work and they have incredible resources on their website. And the AUP is always um, a- an amazing resource. Um, if you're not already a member, please join. Um, and I think that too, like I got into this, this line of work in 2017 when, cam- when campus reform attacked my colleague and accused him of stuff he didn't say. And I think that that it's been a real empowering experience to basically learn and, and get more, more understanding of the institution in which I work and the industry in which I work and to understand it. Um, and because of taking a stake in the politics around around it, and so if there's something on your campus, if there's a strange center that you don't understand, if there's if Candace Owens or some strange speaker is brought by some random student group to your campus that and that that r- raises alarm bells, then uh, feel free to like start up a group of concerned faculty reach out to reach out to uncoke, reach out to AAP, reach out to Bethany and say, hey, what's going on? Can you help walk my, you know, walk me through what's going on here? Can you help me connect, connect the dots? Um, and, and I think that that, that that idea of you know taking ownership over our own, Campuses and the go- the governance of our own campuses, um, and I, I really go back to what Frank and Ruben said that this is really about the future of of the ability to study and the ability to teach. I mean, they understand it. The Koch co- plutocratic a uh, libertarian class understands it as an existential fight. Right? They're in it to win it. Um, and I think that that if if we desire to make sure that speech and research is not Bought and sold as a commodity. If money doesn't equal speech, right? Um, then uh, we have to fight to make to make that true. And I think Bethany said before, we're in a war not not of our own cho- own choosing. And I think that's a really important. We uh, we can't just ignore this and wish it away. Um, we have to. Um, they're, they're, they, they've organized politically, institutionally with considerable resources, with people who give their lives and passions and commitment who are deeply committed to this fight. Um, and I think that if we wanna preserve a university that we desire to live and work in, that um, is gonna require that kind of, of commitment. And it's, it, it's good work to be a part of. So I, I would recommend it to anybody.
0: Thank you, Isaac. I can't think of better words to close our forum today. Thank you for being here, Isaac. Tremendous presentation. Same for Beth Lateek. Uh, Just a, so important the work you're doing at George Mason. Ruben, for your outstanding comments as always. And to all of you for taking the time to be with us today. We know you have many options uh, to devote your attention to. And spending time with us on this important topic, all we can say is thank you Uh, whether you participated in the Zoom Room, uh, watched live on YouTube, or listened on Anchor. Thank you. This is Frank Fear for Future You and also for Under the Radar. And as always, I hope our paths will cross again very, very soon.